This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, Chris, and Pat. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Stephen Kinzer. Stephen is a former New York Times correspondent, a senior fellow in international and public affairs at Brown University, and is the author of Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb, and the CIA Search for Mind Control. During our conversation, Stephen talks about the goals of the MKUltra program, its leader, Sidney Gottlieb, its record of physical and psychological torture, its secrecy from the public, how it brought LSD into America, and how its existence was revealed to the public. The MKUltra program started in 1953 and the public was unaware of it and its abuses for more than 20 years. Because so much of its documentation was destroyed, we'll likely never know the full extent of MKUltra's activity and its abuses of power. But we can learn that it existed, it was real, and it was fully rationalized in its time. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Stephen Kinzer. All right, Stephen. Um, thank you so much for doing this. It is a pleasure to meet you. This is a subject I have wanted to do a podcast interview on for quite some time. Uh, welcome to the show, man. It's great to meet you. It's a fascinating topic, and it's great to be talking <laughs> a lot with you. Thank you. So, how did you get interested in MK Ultra? I know we're going to talk a lot about um, Gottlieb himself, but what do you remember about how you learned about MK Ultra specifically yourself? What's the background story there? Uh, well, your suspicion that there might be a background story is absolutely correct. Uh, it, it went like this. I was writing a book about the Cold War, specifically about uh, the two brothers who ran foreign policy under the Eisenhower administration. John Foster Dulles was Secretary of State, and his brother Alan Dulles was the CIA director. So I was writing this book called The Brothers, about those two guys and their influence and their operations. In that uh, book, The Brothers, there's a section about how the CIA sought to assassinate the prime minister of the Congo in 1960. That was Patrice Lumumba. And mm -hmm. I told that story. And in that story, there's quite a remarkable little piece. And that is that the CIA actually sent poison to their station chief in the Congo. Uh, probably the only time in history that we know of in which the U.S. government sent poison to another country to be used to kill the leader of that country. Um, yeah. And so uh, I put that in my account, that the, the CIA had sent this poison over to the Congo. And then I began uh, wondering a little about that. Now, that really is a very strange thing to do. And who would have carried it? Would it have been like a courier? 
Actually, no. It was not a courier, as it turned out. The guy who carried it was the guy who had made the poison. He's the chief chemist of the CIA. His name was hmm. Sidney Gottlieb, a person nobody had ever heard of. I uh, he lived in the most total anonymity. Um, so uh, I've discovered that actually uh, Sidney Gottlieb was indeed the CIA's poisoner-in-chief, as I call my book. Now, he was the guy that made all the poisons to kill Fidel Castro, all those poison cigars and the poison pills and the poison uh, cigarette cases and the poison fountain pens and so forth. Um, and he created the suicide pills that agents would use in certain circumstances around the world. Uh, and he was actually questioned about this in private uh, during Senate investigations in the 1970s. So that's the only time that Gottlieb ever popped up on the screen. But really, although it's kind of a macabre job, poisoner-in-chief of the CIA, you're really just a pharmacist. If you really know about your poisons and your chemicals, you can do that. There probably were plenty of people who could do that. But as I began to look into Gottlieb, I saw that actually the making of the poisons was a small piece of what he did. The senators didn't know anything about his real work during the 1950s. That was a project that was entirely his own. That was MK Ultra, the CIA search for mind control. So I realized in looking into Gottlieb that we missed the story. We thought it was just a little piece that this was kind of a guy that made poison pills. And he was that. But he was much more than that. He was the person who carried out the most intense and extreme experiments on human beings that have ever been conducted by any officer or agency of the U.S. government. After finishing Poisoner-in-Chief, I concluded to myself that Sidney Gottlieb was the most powerful, unknown American of the 20th century. Unless there's someone else who worked across three continents, carried out these kinds of extreme experiments, and had what amounted to a license to kill issued by the U.S. government. Yeah. I've heard you say that in prior interviews, and I think there's good evidence to to believe that statement that you just made. I, you know, the MK Ultra program, and this is something I've also heard you uh, speak to in research for this conversation. It, it is something that just seems unbelievable to an American when uh, you first stumble upon it, and I, I certainly felt the same way. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to an expert like yourself about the subject. When somebody asks you the question, what was MKUltra, how do you explain that? Well, let me first tell you that uh, your reaction to reading my book is the same reaction, not only that many readers had, but I had the same reaction myself. Yeah. Let me tell you, this is my 10th book. In my other books, I've discovered things that I found quite interesting and surprising. Some people found them shocking. But this is the first time I've been shocked. I still can't wrap my mind around the fact that there was a person, Sidney Gottlieb, and that there was this program called MK Ultra. Uh, so I've delved into it. And, and so my book is an attempt to present a little of what this project was. Now, the records were destroyed by Gottlieb and uh, his superior, Richard Helms, on the way out of the CIA. So... I'm painfully aware that we've only discovered a small portion of what Godly did and, and what MKUltra was. Nonetheless, it's enough to be chilling. 
Uh, so it, here is more or less the genesis of MK Ultra. Uh, in the early 1950s, uh, the CIA became convinced that the communists, meaning either someone in the Soviet Union or in communist China, had discovered or was on the brink of discovering the secret of mind control, how you could blow away someone's mind and control them, make them do what you want while making it seem like they were acting under their own volition. There were a few mistaken episodes or mis episodes that the CIA mistakenly uh, interpreted. Uh, there was the case of a uh, religious prelate, a Catholic prelate in Hungary, who was put on trial after some months in detainment and confessed to crimes he obviously hadn't committed. And, but the CIA was fascinated that he had spoken in a kind of monotone and his eyes were glazed and they thought, oh, this, is, this shows you, this guy's being controlled. It later turned out, of course, he had been coerced by the same methods that police agencies have been using since forever. But the CIA didn't see it that way. They got terrified. And the same kind of thing happened after the uh, Korean War when some American prisoners made statements about the USA and about their own actions in Korea that were so shocking. Um, uh, the CIA concluded they must have been brainwashed somehow. So uh, mistakenly interpreting these signals, uh, the CIA decided we're behind. We have to have a mind control project of our own. And they brought in this chemist, Sidney Gottlieb, uh, to put together what had been scattered programs within the CIA. Alan Dulles, the CIA director, personally named this project MK Ultra because it was the ultra secret. If there were a way for you to figure out how to control the minds of people in other countries, well, the prize would be nothing less than global mastery. Uh, so yeah. Gottlieb was given the opportunity to travel around the world and requisition human beings to conduct experiments on. He began his work as a scientist might, by asking himself some uh, logical, fun foundational questions. First thing he decided was that before you can figure out how to implant a new mind into someone's brain, you have to find a way to blow away the mind that's in there. So the main focus of MKUltra was to find ways to destroy a human mind, and perhaps with it a human soul or a human body. And uh, Gottlieb destroyed an unknown number. We don't know how many of his victims were experimented to death, but there were a number. Um, the next question Gottlieb asked himself is, what research exists on this subject already? How fast can you kill a person with certain chemicals? Uh, how can you incapacitate a person? How can you make a person uh, forget who he or she is? How can you blow away a mind? We don't have much uh, experience in that. And the only way you could get experience was by horrifically grotesque experiments. So he asked himself, who might have conducted horrifically grotesque Experiments, and he quickly came to the Nazi doctors. This was just a few years after the end of World War II and the Nuremberg trials. Uh, so he went after those Nazi doctors and their Japanese counterparts, who had in some cases conducted experiments that were even more gruesome than the ones in the Nazi concentration camps. And he hired these guys. They became part of MKUltra. They were the consultants. 
So uh, while I was researching Poisoner-in-Chief, um, I found what I think might be the first CIA secret prison. It's in a beautiful little chalet outside of Frankfurt in Germany. This was one of the places where Gottlieb would take the victims and carry out these experiments on them. Uh, and so the guy who owns this chalet now is a young German businessman. He was making it into condos when I was there. And he took me into the basement and showed me his storage rooms. He said, these are the rooms where the CIA doctors and their Nazi partners carried out experiments, which were, in effect, just continuations of the experiments that these Nazi doctors had been conducting only a few years earlier, just down the road. And then he told me the people in this neighborhood all know what happened here. And they've told me that bodies of people who were killed under Gottlieb's experiments uh, were buried right around here in the forest in places that are now all covered up with real estate like uh, shopping malls and uh, garages. So uh, there are real traces of it. And Gottlieb was allowed to go... Now, he had conducted a number of his experiments in the United States, but the most intense ones were abroad, where he could show up in Germany or the Philippines or South Korea and tell the CIA station there, I need X number of bodies. And they would find people who they considered, quote, expendables. People who had been captured, maybe refugees who had no connection to anybody or suspected enemy agents. And they would just turn these people over to Gottlieb. And he could conduct these incredibly gruesome experiments on them to see if he could destroy them. That was essentially uh, the foundation idea of MKUltra. Yeah. And I want to get into the, you know, the, the various ways in which, you know, it, it seems to me in, in reading your book that it, it really was a, a two step process. One was to blow out the mind and then two, the attempt to control the mind in many of these experiments. And, you know, I know there are, um, yeah, stories in the book about, uh, research that was conducted against prisoners. There's, a, I believe this is true that at one point, in the beginning of the program, the entire world's supply of LSD was purchased for like a quarter of a million dollars. And that is really the inception of a drug that ended would end up fueling the counterculture in the 60s that was brought into and shepherded into the into the country through this secret CIA program. Maybe we could we could focus on um, what we know. You already alluded to this, that there's so much we may never know because of all the, the documentation that has been destroyed. But in in what your research revealed and what you're confident is likely to have happened or that we know did happen. What are some more of the nefarious aspects of the experiments that took place against unwitting people that um, I think it's just important for Americans to know historically did indeed happen and that we, we kind of face this? We have some indication of some experiments that Gottlieb conducted uh, hmm. or that were conducted under his uh, aegis. Uh we have cases of sensory deprivation where a person might be locked into something like a coffin and injected with large amounts of sedatives that would put that person into a coma. Hmm. And then the person would be injected with massive doses of amphetamines 
to put themselves, put them in a hyperactive stage. And when they were in the transition between the coma and the hyperactivity, they would be subjected to intense electroshocks. All of this together was thought to be a way that maybe you could blow away a person's mind. Uh, now, you mentioned LSD. Uh, the LSD story is very intricately tied with MKUltra. Uh, under uh, that program, LSD was used uh, for two purposes. One is coercive interrogations, and the other was actual clinical research. So mm -hmm. Gottlieb was fascinated with LSD. It was a uh, newly developed substance. You, it was so powerful in such a small dose. It was colorless. It was odorless. Gottlieb himself, by his own account, used it more than 200 times. <laughs> uh, so Gottlieb at first thought this might be, as one of his scientists put it, the key that would unlock the universe. That is, mm -hmm. this is the way we're going to be able to control human minds. So um, he did uh, experiments with massive overdosing. I, we have a protocol of one experiment that happened in the federal prison in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, seven African-American inmates were segregated. And given what were described as triple and quadruple doses of LSD every day, for 77 days. As far as we know, they were not told at all what was happening to them. Uh, they were just allowed to have the heinous reactions that you can imagine this might produce. And the uh, doctor there working for Gottlieb would take notes and write reports and send them up to Washington. Reading about experiments like this made me wonder, uh, what about those seven guys? We had no idea what their names were. Uh, they might well have died without ever knowing what happened to them. Did they ever recover? If the, if the purpose of such an experiment is to determine whether a triple dose of LSD every day for three months is, is going to disturb your mind, I think it's pretty obvious what the answer is. Would they have gone permanently imbalanced? It's it really kind of horrific to think about. This is just one experiment that we know about because of some roundabout mistakes that allowed a few documents to remain uh, available. So multiply that times we don't know how many, and you get an idea of how Godly was using LSD to try to think if maybe this would be a way to destroy a mind. Now, mm. he also had another interest in LSD, which was to try it clinically, to see what ordinary people uh, would do when under the influence of LSD and aware of it. So the CIA did not have clinics or hospitals to uh, carry out any kind of scientific experiments. So what Gottlieb did was uh, he created a couple of bogus medical foundations and these foundations then sent out letters to a whole variety of uh, medical facilities around the country, including VA hospitals and university hospitals, and effectively said, we have this new drug, LSD. It's said to be psychoactive. We want you to test it for us. You put an ad in the newspaper and explain exactly what's going on, and you give these people a clinical setting, um, and then you just write a report for us on how they respond. So Gottlieb 
as you mentioned, actually went out and bought the entire world supply of LSD from the Sandoz chemical company in Switzerland. And while saving some of it for these horrifically coercive experiments that I mentioned earlier, he also spread a bunch of it around to these hospitals where they were carrying out clinical investigations. Now, who were among the first people to volunteer, particularly in California, to take that LSD? One of them was Allen Ginsberg, the poet, who mm. went on to become a great prophet of LSD. And listen to uh, Tristan and Isolde opera on his headphones while he was taking LSD. Another one was Robert Hunter, the lyricist for The Grateful Dead. He brought it home to the Grateful Dead and turned them on, which led to that whole deadhead phenomenon. Another one was Ken Kesey, who went on to write One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a Bible of the counterculture. He, I later found an interview with him in which he said, uh, in that hospital, mental hospital where I worked, I got my material for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by working mm -hmm. there. But that's not the reason I went to work there. That was the hospital where I had taken LSD, and I wanted mm. to work there so I could break into the pharmacy and steal all the LSD from my friends. And that's exactly what he did. So the irony is that the drug that Gottlieb thought would give the CIA the power to control the world wound up fueling this youth rebellion that was aimed at destroying everything the CIA stands for. I yeah. found an interview with John Lennon, in which he was asked about LSD. And he said, we must always remember to thank the CIA. <laughs> now, that was true. But if he had ever heard of Sidney Gottlieb, he would have said, we really have to thank Sidney Gottlieb. And nobody ever knew that name. But he was the guy who turned on America. He brought LSD into the United States for a purpose very different from the one that uh, either its inventor or its countercultural uh, users imagined. Yeah. I know another name um, that has been associated with MKUltra, or at least there's been suspicions that there is a relationship to some degree between these experiments and um, what eventually became of this man and his followers is Charles Manson. And I would love to get any... You know, even if it's just speculation, um, any knowledge or thoughts you may have on what we know or what you think is likely, given your understanding of the details of the program about, you know, his exposure to some of these tests and um, really anything related to his own life that maps onto the MK Ultra program that may not be particularly well known by the American populace. I'm not aware of any direct links between Manson and MKUltra. It was a little bit later, too. Don't forget, uh, the MKUltra project was in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, the Manson episode came a decade later. Uh, now, one of the effects of MKUltra was that even after it was dissolved in around 1960, people who had been involved with MKUltra were still floating around. Louis Jolion West, Jolly West as he was called, was one of the main yep. doctors working in California with MK Ultra. After MK Ultra disappeared, he opened up a clinic in Haight Ashbury where he was so called treating people, but also carrying out all sorts of strange experiments. So that's not MK Ultra proper, 
but it's a spin-off. Now, uh, there are others, uh, other cases. Some people have wondered about Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. He was subjected yeah. to some kinds of experiments at Harvard that were mind-altering or were at least supposed to probe inner meanings of the mind in ways that could have left disturbing traces. Um, I'm willing to open myself up to listen to those things, but uh, my books are all hyperfactual. In all my books, the chapter I'm the proudest of is the footnotes. Everything in there is a fact. So I appreciate these kinds of speculations, uh, but uh, I don't see a direct connection, and I can't put anything in a footnote that I believe. So uh, what I've just told you is about as far as I can go on those cases. Yeah, fair enough. And, you know, uh, you've already alluded to some of the factual um you know historical um, instances of people really being negatively affected by their exposure to some of these programs what else do we know there um you know what what are some additional stories or um events that happened where the as i understand it the the primary conclusion from the program is that you know step 1 of their um you know actions and attempts of blowing out somebody's mind that that is actually something that can be done or can be done rather consistently. It's the second component of controlling somebody's mind after you blow it up. That is, as I understand it, that was Gottlieb's primary conclusion is that that is not possible in relation to step one. What are some of the, uh, you know, factual documented known stories in addition to what we've already talked about related to, um, how they were successful in, um, in, in step one in, in blowing out people's minds. We've talked about LSD, um, some other, um, you know, mechanisms that they were using. What else do we know about how they were successful with that step, step one of that two-step program? You're right that in the end, Gottlieb concluded that he had found a way to destroy a lot of people, but he had never found a way to implant something new in their minds. Uh, yeah. Just to go a little deeper into that, I asked myself in the Poisoner-in-Chief book, what led these guys in the CIA to believe that it's possible to do that? Yeah. And uh, I think there were a couple of reasons. One I alluded to earlier, which was that there were some episodes happening in the world that they misinterpreted. But I think there might have been another reason, too, which is just their cultural background. Think of all the stories and the novels and the movies about uh, somebody putting a pill in someone's drink, and the next thing you know, the person is a zombie, or they... Uh, swing a watch in front of somebody's eyes and the person falls under their control. I mean, there have been so many movies and it, it played Edgar Allan Poe, Sherlock Holmes, they all play into this. So I think the CIA guys had a, a kind of fertile mental ground uh, on which these mistaken conclusions could thrive. And that's mm. what gave them this idea. They figured if fiction writers and screenwriters can speculate on it, we, as the CIA, should be able to make it real. In the end, uh, Gottlieb, as you said, concluded that it wasn't possible, and particularly, for example, with LSD, um, he decided it can, it's just too unpredictable. You don't know. Sometimes a person might tell you everything they know. The next person clams up and won't say a word. So it's just really not useful. Now, you asked about uh, some examples of how these uh, 
how these op- how these operations actually worked. Um, I give you one example um, because this is one that actually runs as a thread through Gottlieb's life, although he would have considered it just a, a minor episode at the time. So early in the uh, MK Ultra program, a person who was probably Sidney Gottlieb was in Paris with a couple of friends, presumably comrades in MK Ultra, and uh, they brought a, a friend of one of these guys, an American, over to their table, and gave him a drink. And the guy with the limp and the stutter, that was what Gottlieb had, gave uh, this young American a drink. Now, this American was an art student. He was there studying with Fernand Leger, and he came from New York. Um, He took this drink, and uh, the next day couldn't get out of bed and was totally out of control of himself. Uh, Over the coming weeks and months, he couldn't go back to school. Uh, He had a complete mental breakdown. He told his girlfriend never to come back and see him again, dropped out of school. Mm -hmm. Finally, his parents had to come and rescue him. Um, He never recovered. He lived in Greenwich Village as a kind of a street person for a couple of decades after that. Later on, I discovered that, uh, among many other things, Gottlieb was interested in seeing uh, whether LSD would be especially effective on uh, people who had particular diseases. And uh, they felt that uh, this guy might be a good subject because he had suffered from one of these diseases that they wanted to test would it make people more vulnerable to, uh, to LSD. So that might have been why this had such an intense effect on him. Uh, in any case, uh, this guy never figured out what happened to him. He just had his complete mental collapse. Flash forward 20 years, we're in the 1970s, and um, the first news that of the existence of MK Ultra emerges as part of a U- U.S. Senate investigation into CIA scandals. Hmm. And in New York City... This guy's sister is watching TV, and suddenly a light bulb goes off, and she calls her brother and says, I figured out what happened to you. It's this thing. It's this guy. Yeah. It's this MK Ultra thing. So they hired a lawyer, and uh, this lawyer really went to work for them. I mean, this was the mid-1970s. But the case, he, he wanted to charge Gottlieb with a series of offenses in relation to this case. In the mid-90s, the guy died. But the lawyer and the sister kept the case going. And I went out and met this guy out on Long Island. He's got a garage full of papers that nobody's ever looked at, but very interesting depositions. So, uh, after 25 years after the event... This dog and lawyer's case finally looked like it was coming up to trial. And they were going to try to pin a series of crimes on Gottlieb personally. He was going to have to testify as a defendant in a criminal case in New York City. And just as the case was about to open, at the beginning of 1999, Gottlieb died. Hmm. This lawyer told me, in my gut, I really believe he committed suicide. 
he didn't want to be the instrument by which the whole MK Ultra thing came out. And so he decided to fall on his sword because he's not ready to testify under oath and he's just going to get himself into more trouble. So we don't know the ending. I mean, there, there's no gravestone. There was no cause of death listed. Uh, so I don't know if that speculation is true. If anybody had a way to com uh, commit suicide with a poison so that nobody would ever be able to find it, <laughs> that was Sidney Godwin. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, and, and maybe so much of this is speculation, but do you have a sense of, you know, the number of people that were likely affected by this program, so many of whom were Americans who ended up like this man you just spoke about, whether it was they couldn't hold a job down and they were homeless, they lost their capacity to take care of themselves and live independently. What's your sense of, of that? And this guy that you just talked about who ended up living in Greenwich Village as sort of a street person for a couple of decades, what did he, what happened to him? What did they give him that made him, uh, you know, psychologically have that kind of a, a, the effect that it did on, on him? He had hepatitis and it's, there's an indication that hepatitis has a particularly, uh, strong reaction to LSD or people that have hep hepatitis react mm. especially strongly. So it could have been a heavy dose of LSD. Now, this guy, this art student, had been treated at the American Hospital in Paris. That mm. hospital had a relationship with the CIA. It released mm. all of its documents. The CIA could see everyone they had. So if they wanted to find somebody around Paris who had hepatitis so they could give that person a heavy dose of LSD, they would easily have been able to figure out that that yep. was this guy. Um I, I really hesitate to put numbers on this. Uh, we do have some horrible cases, some of which I recount in my book. A woman in Canada who went into a psychiatric clinic for treatment of a minor, I think it was a depression or a postpartum depression, and uh, she suddenly got caught into this MK Ultra web where she became a guinea pig for horrific extended electroshock treatments uh, and overdoses of unknown co drug cocktails that left her for the rest of her life unable to recognize anyone in her family or eat with a, a fork and knife. Uh, we only know the few of these in which people yeah. have actually connected their, uh, their experiences back to MKUltra. Another one that uh, is interesting, simply because the person himself figured it out, like uh, this family of this guy uh, who was poisoned in Paris, is the story of the famous Boston gangster Whitey Bulger. So Bulger was a small-time crook uh, who got arrested for truck hijacking uh, in the 50s and was sent to a prison in Atlanta, Georgia. That prison happened to be a place where the doctor, Dr. Pfeiffer, who was head of the... Uh, psychology department at Emory University uh, was carrying out experiments under Gottlieb's supervision. He was a contractor for MK Ultra, hmm. um, And one of the people that he singled out of the inmate population uh, to become a subject was Whitey Bulger. So uh, Bulger's now written about this. He talked about how uh, they gave him these massive doses of LSD. He was going crazy. He was seeing the, the walls in his cell dance around, and he saw colors flashing. 
um, he said, I didn't dare tell people what was I was really seeing because I thought they would declare me permanently insane and I would never see the outside world again. But since then, where I've never been able to sleep without the light on. I've had nightmares my whole life. And again, in the mid-70s, when MKUltra was at least revealed to have existed, uh, the paper in Atlanta the, uh, did a story about an Atlanta angle on the MK Ultra story, which was that at the prison in Atlanta, this Dr. Pfeiffer, who had been a very prominent figure talking about LSD, was actually an MK Ultra contractor. So this news got back to Whitey Bulger. And he hmm. told the guys in his gang in Boston, I'm going to go to Atlanta, I'm going to find that Dr. Pfeiffer, and I'm going to kill him. Now, as far as we know, that's not how Pfeiffer died. Nonetheless, Bulger made the connection and realized that he was an MK Ultra victim. Uh, and he wrote, one of his lines was, I was in prison for committing a crime, but I feel like a much bigger crime was committed on me. And yeah. of course, for the MK Ultra operatives, prisoners were ideal subjects because they were under the uh, control of, of, of the prison guards and the prison administration. So inside the United States, uh, prisoners were favored uh, targets to be used in these extreme experiments. Yeah. It, you know, it, my understanding, too, is that Gottlieb and the people at the top of this program were essentially given carte blanche to do whatever they wanted. And they were essentially outside the law and knew that and it, it conducted their experiments with full knowledge of, of that fact. What do we know about the extent of the program? I, mean, I believe it lasted for something like 20 years with its headquarters, I think, in Maryland. Um, talk, if you can, about the specifics of the extent of, you know, the numbers of people that were involved in MK Ultra, where the headquarters was, um, who the key people were. Anything related to that, I think, would be useful for the audience. Uh, well, first of all, your carte blanche observation is quite apt. So Gottlieb was conducting undoubtedly the most extreme, most brutal, bloodiest experiments on human beings that, that were ever conducted by the U.S. government. He was the most prolific torturer of his generation. Mm. Now, his superiors at the CIA were fully aware that in order to carry out a huge program like MKUltra with such a, uh, a vital goal, you were going to have to do some things that were ugly, brutal, yeah. bloody. Probably people would die. But they didn't want to have to face that. They didn't want to know about it. You know, at the CIA, as in other secret services, uh, ignorance can be an asset. You don't mm. want to know everything. So I think the senior officers at the CIA had a general idea that Godley was doing these kind of things, but they didn't want to know the details. And one of the reasons was so that later on they could say, we didn't supervise him very well, which is exactly what they did say. Uh, there were problems of supervision. Some of our people were out of control in those days. That came up 20 years later. So it worked perfectly that Gottlieb was allowed to go out and do whatever he wanted. Now, that's why I say that his work with MKUltra 
was so much more important than what he did making up the poison pills. Anybody could have done that. What? Not anybody, but any prolific chemist. Uh, but with MKUltra, it all came out of Gottlieb's mind. Another person might have had some moral scruples or might have decided to take the program in some other directions, or at least impose on it a little bit more scientific rigor, because some of the projects they went out on were so far distant from any kind of scientific systematic research techniques that uh, they really became worthless. Uh, but definitely Gottlieb was given complete freedom to kill and, yeah. or let's say experiment people to death. Uh, and uh, there was a reason why he was not supervised. Everybody or the few people above him who understood what he was doing didn't want to know the details. Um, now, MK Ultra fizzled out at the end of the 1950s. Gottlieb went off to Germany for two years, like 59 and 60. And uh, I have been able to extract from the CIA a certain amount of his background. I have a censored version of his personnel file. But the one thing they never would release is anything to do with what he did in Germany those last couple of years. He spoke German. He uh, had conducted many of the MKUltra experiments in Germany. Um, mm. So that remains a blank. But at the end, he came back and essentially agreed that the search for mind control had come to a dead end. He hadn't found any way to do it. Um, mm. Now, the so that lasted for a little less than a decade. Now, there were follow-up programs. Uh, and... Since then, you know, in more recent years, you can only speculate on what might still be out there. But uh, for those years, uh, Gottlieb worked at an office uh, in Washington. This was before the CIA had moved out to its headquarters in Langley, Virginia. Uh, and it's a very stately old building that's right across from where the uh, John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts now is in Washington. Um, and he had quite a... Uh, quite an extensive uh, set of offices in there, which various uh, uh, levels of his department were working. He later went on to become the uh, chief gadget maker for the CIA, mm. like Q in the uh, James Bond movies, mm. the one that makes all the uh, microphones and secret toys and gizmos that spies use. Um, however, Gottlieb also maintained a secret laboratory uh, inside a U.S. Army base uh, in Maryland, a place called uh, Camp Dietrich. Even the people working in the chemical laboratories at uh, Fort Dietrich didn't know that these guys were working for MKUltra or even that they worked for the CIA. They were told to come up with some kind of a bogus cover saying that they were just carrying out investigations uh, for some kind of non-existent military unit. So... The uh, Fort Detrick was and is the main center for American military bio-research. Hmm. And uh, that would have been the ideal place for MKUltra. And that's where, presumably, they concocted some of these extreme uh, drug potions and cocktails. Every time uh, some scientist in MKUltra could come up with an idea that a couple of drugs that maybe mixed together would be especially explosive inside the human mind... They would fabricate it 
out there at, at Fort Detrick. Now, the number of people involved in MKUltra was very small. Just a handful. It was the biggest secret at the CIA. Imagine if this had become known, it would not only have been devastating for the CIA, but for the United States of America. So yep. information had to be held uh, very tightly. And uh, that's why they also had this episode of uh, terror when one of the scientists wanted to drop out. So uh, in between Washington and Fort Detrick in Maryland was the MKUltra axis, but the operatives were flying all over the world, and I can see this in Gottlieb's own personnel file where it lists the various path, fight passports that he had and the places that he mm. went. Yeah. One of the odd things, I mean, just personally and getting familiar with, with Gottlieb's just personal life is that he had hippie aspects to his personality and preferences where he was you know, a meditator. He lived in more of an agrarian rural type of a, an environment. I know I heard you say that he, you know, milked his goats to make his own yogurt. He grew his own vegetables. And here is this man. You mentioned this earlier in this conversation who had dosed himself a couple hundred times with LSD overseeing some of the most grotesque torture and psychological experiments in the history of America. You know, absent from the actual ethical considerations of the scientific research that w was conducted by the MKUltra program, what was learned from a scientific perspective, if anything, about you know, human nature and the human mind? Well, your observation about Gottlieb really adds a completely other uh, la uh, layer to the story. It's really remarkable what sort of a person Gottlieb was. He was totally different from all of the other officers at the top of the CIA in that period. All the rest of them came from the same New England prep schools, and they went to the same uh, yacht clubs, and they went to work for the same investment banks and, and the same international law firms. Uh, they were Silver Spoon Yankee aristocrats. This guy was the son of Jewish immigrants from Central Europe who had a lisp or a stutter, and he, he limped. Uh, he was so different from all of them. And I think this is not an accident. They might have realized one day we're going to have to throw whoever runs MKUltra under the bus and say he was crazy and we didn't know what he was doing. So let's make sure it's not one of us. And then that will become a lot harder. Um, so Gottlieb did live this kind of eco-life. Uh, he didn't want to have running water in his house because he didn't think it was environmentally sound. Um he participated in the uh, local, local government at home. He participated in the plays at Christmas. Uh, he was a civic activist. He tried to, later on in his life, he got a degree to help children who had stutters like him. He was considered himself a deeply compassionate person who studied Zen Buddhism and meditated and wrote poetry. Uh, so it makes you wonder, how do you put these two people together? I used to wonder... Do, when driving home from work, did he kind of, while going over a bridge, leave behind part of his persona, like a snake leaves a skin behind? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I would ask myself, how could a person who thought of himself as deeply compassionate have carried out these heinous crimes, if you want to call them crimes, since he was doing them with the legal... Uh, uh, permission of the U.S. government. How would he put these together? Watching people suffer and die while he's giving them some kind of poison 
and going home and milking his goats because he doesn't want to buy the pure milk from the store. How do you how do you balance that? So I don't know. Um, he when mentioned in one deposition that I read that he, he was asked, "Did you ever discuss MK Ultra with anyone else?" And he said, "I talked about it quite a bit with my wife." His wife was also a very interesting woman, and I can believe they had some long discussions about it. But the wife would never speak. She was a widow for 10 years after Gottlieb died. She, she never sp would speak to any reporters. She said, uh, you'll never get it right. And not only that, after Gottlieb died, she brought her four children together, now all adults, and uh, told them, uh, made them promise never to speak about their father, hmm. ever, to anybody. Hmm. And I know this because I tried very hard to get them to uh, get them to speak. Uh, hmm. So we don't know what Gottlieb thought, how he put this together. But I could offer one speculation after just telling you that I don't speculate. Um, Gottlieb might have thought like this. You have to put yourself back in the moment. It's this intense Cold War period. Americans are being told that the Soviet Union was bent on the enslavement or destruction of all mankind and that uh, an, a nuclear attack from the Soviets could be imminent. We were living on the edge of apocalypse. Now, this is a very powerfully developed narrative that was almost universally embraced as the gospel truth. So Gottlieb might have thought this to himself. Mm -hmm. I am an individualist. I live an offbeat life because that's the kind of life I want to live. That's who I am. And thanks to America and the idea of freedom, I can live this way. If communist enslavement succeeds, all humans will be turned into automatons, and it won't be possible for anybody to have the freedom and the fulfilling life that I have. So in order to protect that life, uh, I have to do some unpleasant things. In fact, I, I saw a little piece of testimony of his uh, in which he says only little snippets have been released from some of his private testimony. He says, I want you to know this work was very difficult for me. Um, so he definitely he might have been affected by what he was seeing, but told himself perhaps this is just the cost of freedom. And really it shows you the danger of getting caught up in some great cause. You know, patriotism is one of the noblest causes. And when you think it's for patriotism, you can put aside some of your moral scruples and you mm -hmm. can consider that the goal is so important that uh, any kind of uh, loss of a few lives or a few hundred lives uh, would be just a small price to pay uh, for protecting America. He told a visitor to his house who was trying to push him on a few things, which he refused to talk about, you don't understand, Professor, I had the fate of this country in my hands. Now, you can imagine him believing that at that time, and I think that would have been the reason why he felt justified in carrying out these actions. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And and related to the science that was conducted and the conclusions and the knowledge that was gained, uh -huh. um, so what, what sticks asked, out to uh, you? What was the actual scientific result? Gottlieb yeah. himself uh, proclaimed in his private memo that uh, really the whole thing was a failure. <laughs> we didn't learn anything except that <laughs> they were guys who thought about making mind control real were fantasists. So really, it was just one of those never mind moments. Oh, too bad. I don't know how many people we killed and we had to do it back then. I think that was the attitude. Um, mm -hmm. And sure enough, as I said earlier, 
uh, Gottlieb was singled out as the one person who kind of ran off the rails. Uh, he later protested that um, documents were emerging uh, from the CIA in which se- there would be several signatures, and all the signatures would be blacked out, but not his. His name was on there. So uh, he saw that as a uh, a way that some of these CIA people were trying to protect themselves by shifting blame onto him, and I'm sure that's exactly what it was. But uh, scientifically, that project was a failure. Um, and uh, I think even by the late 50s, it became clear to scientists that it was a dead end. Uh, now, uh, I think Gottlieb was right when he concluded there's no such thing as mind control. But he was right when he said it. Like, how many years? That's 60 years ago. Yep. When you think about the advances in computer technology and artificial intelligence uh, that have happened in recent years, uh, you wonder uh, if it was true then, there's no such thing as mind control. Is it still? Will it always be true? Or will there ultimately be ways found that will prove uh, Gottlieb uh, was right when he spoke, but wrong for the future? Yeah. I know we're getting a little bit closer to the end of the conversation. So there are just a couple more things I want to cover with you. And the first is how this information was leaked in the first place, how the, how the public came to this knowledge, I think in the early to mid seventies, what's the story there? How did the, how did the American population end up beginning to learn about the details of this government program? There was a series of scandals that came from the Watergate scandal, and it touched the CIA because the CIA had been tangentially involved in the Watergate scandal, and that led to a series of congressional hearings and other investigations of the CIA. A new CIA director was appointed, Stansfield Turner. Uh, He was committed to openness, and that's why Jimmy Carter had placed him in the job. Um, He ordered uh, his people to carry out a search pursuant to a request by a Washington activist and journalist. And uh, this guy, as Stansfield Turner put it in congressional testimony, did, a, did quite a job of Sherlock Holmesing and discovered <laughs> the following. Although Gottlieb and uh, the outgoing CIA director, Richard Helms, who was uh, been his sort of chief supervisor all during the MKUltra years, had destroyed all the records of MKUltra, thereby committing a federal crime by destroying federal property. Uh, It turned out that in another CIA depot, uh, there were a series of documents about the financial records of MKUltra, buried in a financial jungle of documents. And from those financial documents, it was possible to begin to extrapolate what some of those projects were. So there are all kinds of receipts and there are descriptions. Later on, there became uh, testimony by people who were involved in it, including one of the agents in California who turned out to be very talkative. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I've had to put it together from various sources, but it all began in the 70s when the CIA found some material. And after that, pieces have come out partly because of what I've tried to extract and partly because of the work of others. Hmm. Fair enough. Uh, The last thing I want to go over with you is related to today. And, you know, the, the American population was in the total dark about 
this program and what was happening and the extent of the details and the torture and the psychological experiments. This I know is speculation, but you know, last week I had uh, Josh Chin on who just wrote a book about surveillance in China. And this is another, you know, totalitarian or pseudo totalitarian government that is beginning to have incredible power with their surveillance technology over their population. And it's being implemented with the Uyghurs, as we all know now, but they're learning so much about how to track and control people with modern technology over there. And I think it would be naive to believe that, you know, the U.S. government isn't acutely aware of that and concerned and, you know, desirous of a competitive advantage against our primary foe today. And, you know, I just wanted to close the conversation to get your thoughts on that in terms of what that could look like now, you know, if in 20 or 30 years something gets leaked that is happening today that we are completely oblivious to. And even if you just have any hunches about what that might look like, I wanted to get your thoughts on it. When I think of how crazy my book, Poisoner in Chief, would look <laughs> if you brought it to somebody in the 1950s, yeah, I can't help but wonder, what if somebody could come back in 50 years, back to me now, and write and show me a book written about what's happening right now in the 2020s? Yeah. Would I be just as shocked? Maybe yes. Uh, you're absolutely right that these programs are always uh, posited as defensive. All the times we taught people how to torture, it was just to teach them, actually, someone you might be tortured, so you have to know what these methods are so you can resist them. And there, there's, always, there's always a kind of a light fiction that uh, we're just doing this so that we'll know what they're doing. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this is happening in biological warfare as well. Uh, biological the development of most bioweapons is banned by international treaty. Um, maybe the United States would be thinking, suppose there's a bad actor out there that's violating that treaty, and we one day would be attacked. We'd have to know how to protect ourselves against such an attack. How are we going to yep. do that? Well, we're going to have to develop the poisons and then see how we can counteract them. So you always have this... Uh, veneer of it being a defensive program. Uh, you're absolutely right that uh, China is, is the pioneer. I think Israel in the occupied territories has something uh, almost similar. Um, that could be the future. Now, there is a difference between being able to monitor people at all times, which yeah. is chilling enough, and being able to control their behavior. Uh I can't believe I'm the first person or you and I are the first two people that ever thought about this. Uh, that would be the logical next step after uh, you know everything they're doing and who they are, what their impulses are. Can you find a way to control that? Uh, in neuroscience over recent decades, there's been much more of a swing back to the idea that the mind and the body are one. Yeah, just like what Aristotle said, not this Sigmund Freud, all the stuff about how the mind has nothing to do with the body. No, it's all in there. Everything it's in yeah. your brain in some particular place. I think this is the direction of neuroscience now. Uh, hmm. it, the soul, the mind is not something really abstract. It's, it's a very physical thing that you can find. Hmm. Um, and there have to be people working inside some uh, U.S. government contracting firms researching this. Uh, it's, it's chilling to think that if what I wrote about in Poisoner-in-Chief, which is 
amazingly extreme and shocking. Yeah. Could have been happening then. Why couldn't it be happening now? It would be foolish not to believe it. And I have to, I have to get this as your ethical North Star take on your research, right? Like it's easy to look back in history and judge people. And I, I think it would be difficult to not be judgmental and uh, critical of the way that the CIA and, and Gottlieb conducted himself. But, you know, these were people who had rationalizations for why they were doing what they were doing, as all people do in this world. I was thinking earlier about some of the you know hippie aspects of Gottlieb and how that mapped onto Hitler's vegetarianism, just something so odd about his personality. But do you have a general you know, ethical compass for the country, uh, even if there are seductive new tests that can, you know, be taken on unwitting citizens that really it's the protection of the individual person that is paramount regardless of the, you know, the knowledge that can be gleaned potentially from crazy experiments. How do you think about that? I'd love to close on that just as a, uh, kind of a, you know, a stake in the ground for how people might think about this moving forward? Well, first of all, I would say for people in general, uh, one of the messages of the Poisoner in Chief story is don't swallow the narrative that you're being fed by government and power. Mm. Uh, I think the Cold War was probably the most powerfully developed narrative in all of modern history. Yeah. But we're still being fed very one-sided accounts of certain great things happening in the world. And I think that in itself is a form of mind control, like advertising for products, but also propaganda <laughs> from government to believe that a certain side is good and a certain side is evil. Sometimes this is so overwhelming, uh, everybody seems to embrace it. So that's, I think, the lesson for ordinary people is to hmm. take some distance from the narrative. And... Finally, you're asking about ethical guidelines. You know, this question came before the Nuremberg Tribunal after the end of the Second World War. And they actually came up with a great a few principles. Hmm. One of the most important was that you cannot carry out experiments on a human being without that person's informed consent. Yeah. Now, uh, I'd like to ask Sidney Gottlieb, did you ever hang a copy of the Nuremberg Principles, which were proclaimed by the United States in those little rooms in Germany, right near where they were issued while you were torturing people? So I don't think we need to invent a new set of standards. Yeah. The Nuremberg Principles are very eloquent. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a matter of figuring out what to do. It's coming up with the political will to do it. And that becomes difficult in an environment where you're always told, this is an emergency situation. We're in an yep. intense crisis now. We have to give up certain freedoms and civil liberties because we're facing a terrific enemy. But that never seems to change. The, the temporary emergency is not temporary. And therefore, bit by bit, this consciousness that we can try to protect ourselves against encroaching power fades away. So that's why I say I think these two are combined. Let's... let's uh, not swallow the narrative and go back to principles that we proclaim without having to look for new ones. Just create the political will to follow elemental rules of ethics that we develop, regardless of what you might be told about the present situation that makes following rules foolish at this moment. Don't buy that argument. 
Yeah. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for doing this and for your hard work on the book. You know, I, I'm a big believer in people being um, informed about their, their history and their country's history. And it's incredible to me that it was only in my, in my thirties that I learned about this program in the first place. And um, I think you've done a, a really solid service to the country and making this information more widely known. So I really appreciate the time and, and thanks so much for coming on. It's great to meet you. I'm always looking for untold stories. And all my books are about that. This one is really untold and quite a story. Thanks for having me. You got it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. Thank you.